The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. The economy is in a very odd place right now. The overall numbers are great in the United States. Unemployment is low, growth is decent. Several companies have been raising the wages of blue-collar employees. But at the same time, stable full-time jobs with benefits can be hard to come by. To make ends meet and improve their quality of life, lots of people are joining the gig economy or doing other kinds of temporary work. Welcome to Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I'm John Ford from CNBC. Happy New Year. These observations about the state of work and the economy led to a conversation with Stefan Kazriel, the CEO of Upwork. Upwork is a digital platform where people who have skills can put those skills out for hire, either by the project or on a longer-term basis. I met Stefan at CNBC's Productivity at Work event, where he gave a talk about how employment is changing. We took it further to talk about geopolitics, his journey as an executive, and what today's workers need to know to seize control of their careers. Here's Stefan. Upwork is a freelance uh, platform enabled by technology, helping people to work kind of how, where, when they want, giving flexibility to both employers and employees. But right now in France, where you were born, there's a lot of unrest around the economy. Um, it started off with a gas tax, but really minimum wage has come into it. Uh, the, the middle class bargain, a lot of people feel like, has been violated. As someone who is pushing a different future for work, what's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I think what's happening in France right now is happening in many of the Western countries at the same time, which is the fact that um, the, the middle class is uh, struggling at a time when jobs uh, potentially get automated, jobs get moved overseas, or jobs in general transform themselves faster than ever before. You know what the World Economic Forum calls the, the fourth industrial revolution. And many countries have struggled with a way to reskill people so they can take on the jobs of the future. You know, if you thought What's about the fourth industrial re revolution for people who aren't familiar sure. with yeah, the so terminology? It's, I mean, it's, it's a, you know, a theme that the, the World Economic Forum has been trying to put forward. But the idea was we've gone through the first industrial revolution, which was the invention of the steam engine, so way back when, 200 mm. years ago. Uh, and with that came a massive transformation of work. You know, most people used to be working on the farm. Most people essentially used to be freelancers, entrepreneurs. You know, it was a profit-sharing business where you owned a piece of land, and if you could make a lot of profit from the land, you made a lot of money. If you couldn't make a lot of profit, you would be losing a lot of money. First industrial revolution, massive movement of people to work on the assembly line. The second industrial revolution, which is probably the one that people think about the most, is the, the rise of electricity, the beginning of automation, and you know, the Tellerism, Fordism, the idea that you would work from nine to five, that you would have to be on site, that you would have a single employer, and it was no longer a profit-sharing agreement. You'd get paid whether the, the company made money or not. Mm. And with that came the labor movement, you know, the, the 
bundling of work with other benefits like healthcare, like uh, you know, vacation retirement. time, retirement, yeah. pensions, you know, uh -huh. all of that stuff. The third industrial revolution is uh, the knowledge economy, the service sector, if you will, starts in the 1950s, and essentially we move from the assembly line to the office tower, you know, the cube farm, all of that stuff, and that was. I would say a real missed opportunity and the situation we face right now is the fact that we had inertia you know we saw we thought what worked really well in the second industrial revolution let's not rock the boat let's not reinvent things and just do more of the same in the third industrial revolution so the fourth one is you know what's happening today it's an acceleration of the pace of change where skills getting reinvented faster than ever before. Economists estimate that the half-life of a skill is about five years today, mm -hmm. meaning whatever you know today is only worth half as much in the economy five years down the road. But of course, you don't reskill the, the whole population every five years. You frankly don't reskill the population ever. And so you're left with uh, lots of people who had, you know, huge economic value when they graduated from school, but over time that value is decaying. And you see this, you know, in Paris right now, you've seen it in the elections, you know, in many countries around the world, people struggling to say, look, I want to work out, I want to be useful. Work, by the way, is not just about money, it's about a place in society, it's about the meaning of, you know, your own life. And there's nothing in it for me anymore. Mm. And people are really struggling with that. And I don't think we've found a good way of financing lifelong learning, of helping people find local jobs, even if they don't happen to be living in Paris, in New York, in Shanghai, in the places where there's all the, the, the economic activity. So where's the flexibility that a platform like Upwork provides fit into that? Yeah, so I think there's two big components to this, right? One is location, and the other one is the nine to five. Right. And the location increasingly is a problem because the, the jobs in the economy are created in a smaller and smaller number of cities in the world. Like if you look at uh, you know, GDP growth by number of zip codes in the U.S., it keeps uh, getting more concentrated. We're in San Francisco in the Bay Area. There's a lot of tech growth here. Up in Seattle, there's been a lot of tech growth. Mm -hmm. Amazon's looking at a, a couple of cities to put major locations. Yeah. They put them on the coast in Northern Virginia and DC, right? Where the, the middle doesn't get much. And it's a missed opportunity. I would have said, you know, the, the right thing to do for the US economy, maybe not the right thing to do for the Amazon shareholders, <laughs> but for the US economy would have been to try to put that HQ2 in a place where you know the, the 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 economy is not as strong and frankly that would have been a challenge because finding 50,000 highly skilled worker in a smaller city is tough and so what they did with having a HQ2A and HQ2B I would say extend it and have you know 10 of those in 10 smaller cities and recreate the local economy yeah. but fundamentally what's been happening here in the US is um, worker mobility is going down every year meaning people are less and less likely to move for uh, a job they move within a zip code they move within a state they don't move across states anymore in fact we're seeing the reversal of what we've had historically you know historically the the story of the u.s and the story you know the, the dust bowl etc etc is people move away from places where the jobs disappear mm -hmm. and they move to the places where the jobs are and what we're seeing today in the economy is uh, this is happening less and less, and in fact, it tends to happen the other way around, which is that even though San Francisco has great opportunities for tech workers, it's also a very, very high cost of living for everybody else. And so you're seeing a net migration of people away from these you know, regional high GDP type of hubs and moving back to places where the cost of living is lower. This is the exact opposite of what was supposed to happen. Exactly. Uh, 15 
maybe more 15 years ago, we were sold this idea of telepresence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, companies, Cisco was talking about this, would have these telepresence rooms mm -hmm. and you wouldn't have to travel across the country or around the world to do that deal. They'd be on a high def screen and it would feel like you were in the same room. And by the way, the internet and these platforms for communication would, uh, software as a service would allow people to act like they were in the office, be just as productive, mm -hmm. even if they're sitting at home. And we were sold this idea mm -hmm. of the future of work being work wherever you are. Right. But what's happening is it's more and more important to be in places where it's harder and harder to be. Yes. Why? And I think that's exactly what I was saying by saying we missed an opportunity in that third industrial revolution. What you just said is absolutely true. People are working from home are as productive. In fact, there's a lot of studies that show that they're more productive than people who have to commute for an hour and a half to the office to sit in front of a screen where they're doing video conferencing and you know, Slack chat with their next door, you know, cube neighbor anyway. <laughs> um, but the society and the economy have not adapted. And I think this fourth industrial revolution is a time when people will adapt and frankly, where they have to adapt. You know, this is not tenable. The cost of living, rents in San Francisco have been going up by about 6% per year for the last 45 years. If you compound that, by the way, people's salaries have not gone up that much, even if you work in tech, let alone if you don't work in tech. And this is happening across the country. So it gets to a point where, you know, 80% of houses in San Francisco cost more than a million dollars. Mm -hmm. Very, very few people, definitely not 80% of the population, can afford to live in a place that costs a million dollars. And meanwhile, you don't have to go far. Just go to Stockton, you go to Modesto, you go a couple hundred miles away from here, and you find really nice places with great communities, a cost of living that is much more reasonable, but it's beyond commuting distance. Mm -hmm. So you might be able to commute from Modesto to, to uh, San Francisco, you know, once every few weeks, once every few months, whenever you feel like you really need that FaceTime. There is a lot of value in FaceTime from time to time. You just can't do it every day. Mm. And that's what needs to get reinvented. And that's where, you know, Upwork comes in. I mean, we build software to enable people to work remotely and to enable people to hear about each other. Because the way most people find jobs and the way most companies find workers is through, you know, referrals of personal networks. And your personal network is very geographically tied to where you live. So if you live a couple hundred miles away from here, you might be highly skilled, hardworking, exactly the type of person that you know, the companies like Google and Facebook and others really want to attract, but you don't hear about the opportunities and they don't know about you. And so we're helping connect the supply and the demand more efficiently. There's an efficiency story here too. Um, we met when you participated in CNBC's Productivity at Work mm -hmm. conference uh, back in October, and you put together a presentation uh, on the future of work and the freelance economy rather quickly using Upwork, right? Sure. Yeah, we use, I mean, as a company, there's about 1,500 people who work add up work, uh, a thousand of them are freelancers. Mm. And um, you know, they tend to stay in the company more involved for a lot longer than the people based in San Francisco and, uh, and uh, Chicago because they tend to be um, in a place where either uh, they physically could not move and they live in a place where the jobs are not available or they have availability you know, constraints. Like they have young children, they have elderly parents, they have a sick spouse. There's reasons why people are doing this that makes it incredibly compelling to do it for a very long time. Mm. If you're a freelancer, you're a business owner. Mm -hmm. um, I would argue that to the extent that our education system in the U.S. does a good job in general, it mm -hmm. does a good job training people for certain jobs, but does not do a good job training people to be business owners. Yes. If that's the future of work, more freelance work, more of that kind of flexibility, 
What kind of education do people need to seek out to be ready for that? Yeah, and I think like generally we need to understand what are the skills of the future and how do we train for the skills of the future. And, mm -hmm. you know, the challenge people always have is, you know, crystal ball, tell me exactly what the skills of the future look like. And of course, nobody knows. I mean, you, you kind of know the skills of three to five years from now. And if you could change your curriculum as a, you know, university fast enough, you could probably just be just in time and say, given what's going to happen three years from now, which is more or less what we need right now, let's train for that. But usually it takes longer than that. So training people for very specific skills is a dead end. You can't do that as a university. We need to switch to a world of lifelong learning, you know, combination of the MOOCs and more like on-site boot camp type of things. But people will need to retrain themselves regularly. It needs to be funded by a combination of companies, unions, government, the individuals themselves. But we can't expect people to learn everything they're ever going to need by the time they're 25. But maybe the one specific skill that people there's need. There's meta skills, right? So I think those are the ones that will be there. Entrepreneurship is one of them. Right. I would say resilience is one that we don't teach well enough in school. But like even the specific skill of understanding uh, how to do taxes yeah. and, and uh, how to save for retirement in mm -hmm. a way. If you're going to be responsible for that, if pensions are pretty much uh, gone, and by the way, if you're a freelancer, the 401k isn't handled the way that you might have expected based right. on what your parents uh, have experienced, th that's something you need to know very specifically as yes. a skill and how to allocate resources for, right? Yeah, and I would say there's a few schools. You know, I would give an example would be the, the Academy of Art uh, College here in, in San Francisco. Designers historically have been much more likely to be freelancers than many other uh, jobs. And so I think they've early on included it in their curriculum that not only do you need to be a good designer, but you need to be a good entrepreneur. You know, how do you position yourself? How do you evolve your skills? How do you invest in yourself? How do you invest in your retirement? How do you save money aside for when, you know, the economy might not be as strong? All of these things that I would argue need to be taught at other types of uh, universities here in the US. And of course, it also goes for people that don't go through college. You know, the, there's still a very large percentage of the population here in the U.S. and globally that either can't afford or is not able to go to college for some reason. And we still need to make sure that they are not left behind and they have a, a meaningful role in the economy. And I would say in particular, allowing people to work online, allowing people to get the basic digital skills mm -hmm. that allow them to be successful on a platform like Upwork or others. More people these days might not be moving from the area where they lived or grew up, two areas of opportunity, but you did. Mm -hmm. What was the story there? So you were born outside Paris, mm -hmm. um, into what sort of an environment, educationally, uh, interest-wise for your family? Yes, yeah, so I, you know, I came from a family that, uh, uh, you know, my grandfather was an entrepreneur, my dad joined a company pretty early on and had a very successful profession. What did your grandfather profession. Uh, do as an entrepreneur? He, uh, so he, that, you know, that, that part of our family moved from uh, Poland and Russia. Uh, they were you know, Jews, and uh, at the time in the 1915, 1920, it was not good to be a Jew in uh, Poland and Russia. So they uh, walked essentially all the way to France and wow. established there, and he was in the garment industry. So he uh, used to make hats for people. Wow. This is a long, long time ago. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I you know, grew up in a family of uh, people that were building businesses and growing businesses. and. Uh, um, you know, got a standard French education and then decided to uh, go into tech. You know, I learned how to code when I was 12 years old, which back in the 80s in Paris was not that common. And I really got into it. How did you get into it? Who, who introduced you to that? Um, you know, my parents bought me a Atari 800, like a really old machine back when I was 12. And uh, because I, I don't know, I, it's actually not totally <laughs> clear what it happened, but yeah. I just, you know, fell in love with the thing. And at the time, you know, like nowadays when you 
turn on a computer, you've got all these browsers and games and all this stuff that is pre-installed. At the time when you turned on your computer, you had a prompt to write code. And if yeah. you didn't write code, there was not much else you would do with the computer. So you kind of naturally got into this. And uh, you know, I realized you know, tech and entrepreneurship was going to be where it was happening. And at the time, I would say the French tech is a real thing now. It was not a real thing back in the 1990s. You know, we still thought that the Minitel was going to be the, the future of tech. And it was pretty clear that Netscape and Yahoo were more likely to be the future of tech than the Minitel. And that's why I you know, decided to come to grad school here and then you know, started a company and one thing led to another. What area did you move to for grad school? I went to Stanford. You know, I, I was there. Uh, on the same floor as a guy named Larry Page and a guy named Sergey Brin, <laughs> and I thought that creating another search engine was a really dumb idea uh, back in 98, and so I decided to instead start my own company. What company did you start? It was called FireClick, and uh, the idea was to make the web faster. Uh, you know, back, so if you go back, this is 20 years ago, so maybe not everybody remembers anymore, but people connected using modems. Ah, yeah. And uh, the you know e-commerce was just starting to be a thing, but people were really, really frustrated with how slow e-commerce was. And so they would more often than not, you know, start a shopping cart session and then abandon it. And this was missed revenue for uh, the early e-commerce providers. So we had built a set of technologies to make the web, uh, you know, faster or appear to be faster than it would look like otherwise. What happened to Fireclip? Uh, you know, it, we survived the dot-com bubble in 2001, but all of our customers, you know, the pets.coms and the web van of the world were our main customers, so we had to downsize pretty brutally. Mm. And at the same time, the web became faster because people moved from having modems to having, you know, DSL and cable and all of the things of the day. And so the problem we were solving was less relevant. So kind of the double whammy, you know, the economy collapses and your product market fit disappears. So we uh, pivoted to become one of the early web analytics companies. So the idea was we were capturing a lot of data about clicks that people were using on the site, and it had become obvious that product managers and marketers and engineers really wanted to know what was going on on their site, what pro you know clicks they were buying from Google, were they you know converting or not, which uh, uh, pricing uh, promotion was helping, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we built one of the early web analytics companies, and then we sold it to a company called Digital River, which still exists today and is publicly traded. You became an engineering manager after that. What about uh, adaptation and uh, about motivating people did you learn during that period? I mean, I think like the main thing about you know, tech and the barrier that's amazing is how much you have to have a culture of growth and learning. And to me, like the thing that drives people, all of the people that work at Upwork is a, the purpose of the company, you know, it's a great mission. We help people find jobs that otherwise would be struggling to get jobs. But B, it's a place where you learn a lot. You know, what you do today is very different from what you'll do six months from now. And it's very different from what you'll do, you know, two years from now. And for some people that's stressful and that's a source of anxiety. But for a lot of people, it's a source of inspiration. You know, this idea that you might be very young and early in your career and coming to uh, this company, you'll learn a lot and you'll grow faster than you would by working at a more traditional, slower-paced type of company where you know, you'll have to do 20 years to get to that level and another 20 years to get to that level. And frankly, no matter how smart and hardworking you might be, that's just the career trajectory and there's not much you can do about it. What's your advice, finally, to um, a young person, maybe entrepreneurial, we'll take not entrepreneurial at first, that's wondering about, should I move to one of these expensive coastal locations and uh, try to make good there w with a large employer? Or, you know, should I go to a, a different, more affordable location, build up skills, and try to be a freelancer? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the answer is less, um, uh, you know, obvious today than it was 20 years ago. Like 20 years ago, you know, you asked me, why did I move here? I moved here because this was the place. There was no other place that was meaningful if you wanted to be in tech and you wanted to be an entrepreneur. Silicon Valley was whatever it was, 90% of VC money globally was happening here. Mm. And that is not true anymore. There's tons of really good talent outside of the barrier. There's much more access to capital than there used to be. And meanwhile, the cost of living has continued to go up in a way that is frankly completely unaffordable. You know, what we, what we see a lot actually is tech companies here in the barrier that are using Upwork to find uh, talent all around the world because talent is much more distributed today than it ever was before. And meanwhile, the war for talent here is uh, as strong as ever. And it makes it, you know, that much harder for an early stage tech company to compete against the Googles of the world who frankly are willing to pay much more than you could ever afford, even though their jobs might not be as interesting. I get that if you're already at a pretty high level in your profession, if you're able to charge a high hourly rate and you're happy with that. Yeah. But how do you advance? If you're you know, in Omaha and, and doing some contract work for a big company, that's good, but are you gonna be able to move up in that company beyond doing that specific task if you're based in Omaha? Yeah, and I think you have to find companies that are more open-minded. You know, if you, hear, if you hear that as a pushback from a company that would say, the only way you could get promoted or take a bigger job is for you to relocate to San Francisco, well, that's a big red flag. Mm -hmm. You know, I would say, well, that's time to go figure out which other company might be open to it. But I would say, you know, particularly if we're talking about tech here, if you're, you know, a, uh, an engineer or a designer, there are tons of companies that are, you know, officially based in the Bay Area, but are frankly, mostly distributed, there's even companies now that just don't have an office at all, right? I mean, if you look at companies like InVision or you look at companies like Zapier and Buffer and others, they shut down their office because, you know, as soon as you have 80, 90% of your workforce that is not in the barrier, paying millions of dollars for an office where people commute to it, and when they show up there, all they do is do video conferencing with the people that are not, <laughs> that's just completely absurd, right? So at some point, you've just got to figure out which companies are more uh, you know, future uh, looking, and those are the ones that you want to work with, as opposed to the ones that might have much more conservative views on, you know, unless everybody's in the same office, you can't possibly be successful. I know I said that was the last question, but I, I thought of another one I got to ask. Liberal arts or not? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I think like, you know, I don't know that we'll ever recreate the whole humanist movement. You know, there's just too much knowledge to be the modern Da Vinci. Da Vinci. But it's very clear that if all you do is writing code, first of all, like, if all you do is writing code without doing a lot of thinking, eventually that gets automated away. You know, people keep talking about AI replacing lawyers and replacing accountants and replacing radiologists. Well, AI also replaces basic coding skills, right? There's lots of ways you can reduce the number of lines of code uh, to generate the same uh, algorithm through machine learning. And so you need humans that can think and you need humans that in particular can train the machine to think in a way that is human. <laughs> and that is what you know humanities are about. So I think it's not either or. Like if all you do is philosophy and you learn about the Greeks, you know, maybe the jobs of the 21st century are gonna be a little bit of struggle. But if all you do is the hardcore STEM, uh, you're going to be, be missing out on the thing that makes us different from the machine, which is, you know, the heart and the, the human part of us. And you really need to learn both. We're all going to have to get a lot more flexible. Stefan, thanks. Thank you. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me a note. Also subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That's a brand new and great way to keep in touch with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. 
It's also the absolute best way to be in touch with me. Leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. You can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV. Also, find Fort Knox in the featured area there. And meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.